I was born in, in St. Petersburg, which was Leningrad at that time, 1949. My full name is Marina Turina Oberlander. Welcome to The Meg Robinson Show, exploring the stories that make us who we are. I'm your host, Meg Robinson. Most of us know what it was like to grow up in the 1950s, 60s, and 70s in the United States, either from personal experience or from the music and movies of that era. But what about a girl growing up in the Soviet Union during those same years? How did she navigate a parallel life, one in which the things she was able to say in the privacy of her home and with close friends could not be said in public? We learn how this affected her psychologically and what kind of impact this duality had on her life. My father uh, moved, uh, my, my parents moved to Moscow because my father became director of the Institute of Soil Science. Moving was a pretty, you know, tough job. The, they sent me to, to my grandparents, my mother's parents, who lived in Ukraine in a very little town. And I came to Moscow when I was four. First thing, if you, if you are interested about uh, what shaped me, the family. The family shaped me, and especially my grandfather. He stayed alive in the Gulag, where he spent 10, 10 years from 1937 to 47. The Gulag was a Soviet system of forced labor camps in remote regions of the country where millions of people died. So when I was born, he already recovered more or less after that because my grandmother took very good care of him. Because he, of course, he, when he came back, he was half alive. How did he end up in the gulag, actually? He was director of school, and uh, a teacher wrote a report on him because she wanted to get the job. (gasps) Because she wanted the job. Yeah, yeah. So she just wrote that he was an enemy of the state, and uh, that's it. And this was what year? 37. The director of school had had an apartment that was given him by school, so she was thrown away. Uh, fortunately enough, my mother and her old brother, they were already in universities themselves in Moscow. So she went back to, uh, to thank God they had a property in Ukraine. And after the war, my father, who was a widower, his first wife died in in June 1945, and he was, uh, of course, devastated because he lived with her for 22 years and he loved her very much. And also there was, you know, in in Leningrad after the war, because a lot of men, of course, were, you know, gone. There was a hunt after widowers and after men who, you know, A hunt? You called it a hunt? It was a hunt. (laughs) So he wanted to escape, and he escaped to this distant place in uh, on Kola Peninsula just for a vacation. He took a vacation and went there, and there he met my mother. He was uh, 52, and she was 26. Wow. 
That's quite an age difference. But he was so, he, he was just absolutely a fantastic man, a fantastic man. And she fell in love with him immediately. She became a widow when she was 44, and uh, she never remarried. And when I asked her, Mom, why didn't you remarry? Because there were a lot of men. She was a beautiful woman. And she said, because all these men, in comparison with your father, were dummies. And did you, under, at what age did you begin to understand why he was sent and what I didn't actually know that he was in the gulag until I turned 16. Then my mother told me about that. I see. And he never talked about he it? He never talked about it. He okay. never talked about it. So you grow up in, um, in Moscow. I grew up in, in Moscow in a beautiful apartment. Uh, my father has a car. Uh, with a driver provided to him by Academy of Science, and uh, no, you know, no problems. Yes. No problems. I lived, uh, I was blessed, you know, I was blessed. The problem started when my father died and my grandfather died, and they died two weeks apart. Oh, very tough. Two weeks apart. Mm. I was. I, I was going on 13. And how did you cope with that? That must have been extremely hard. Well, I was, I was still, uh, you know, a little girl, and my mother was with me, and my grandmother was with me. So, and they tried to, to comfort me and to continue everything what I started with, with uh, you know, studying in the English school and studying music and uh, writing and reading. And uh, I, of course, it was a great loss. And I I felt it because there were no men in our family. What was the view um, of the United States? Well, I think that I knew about United States much more than uh, than kids in the United States knew about Russia or Soviet Union because my father traveled to United States twice. So uh, my father had a diary, and I have it still. Mm. Uh, it is a wonderful diary of of, and also he was a great photographer. So we had albums two albums of his trip and I liked to look through the through the pictures and I and he told me where he was and uh, you know tell, told me lots of stories and brought a lot of you know different goodies and uh, and of course pictures and also he, we were uh, he could subscribe to a magazine that was called America that was launched during uh, Eisenhower's uh, presidency uh, after the American exhibition in Moscow. My father is a scientist, as an academician. He uh, had access to subscription to this journal. And this journal came every month and it was beautiful. It was big. It had beautiful pictures. There were wonderful stories and everything. So 
I had a, actually, I had a fascination about America. That was one of my goals to, to study languages because I wanted to work and be able to travel. I've uh, learned to read very early. I learned to read myself when I was four years old. I loved books. We didn't have TV, had just a little radio. I, I just loved books. My parents and my grandparents, they, they had a, just a wonderful library. You went to university? Yes, I went to the university. I went to the English school, and I, then I went to the university. Okay, and you graduated? I graduated what? in 72. And were women at that time in Moscow, were they professional? Were you expected to have a career and a profession? Oh, yeah, absolutely. 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 So um, when, I, uh, when I learned that there would be a Danish group with Danish language, I, started, I, I went to the uh, deputy dean and I said that I want to be in that group. He said, that's impossible. I said, why? He said, because this group will have only five people and there will be only boys. And I said, that's discrimination. Oh, and I want to see the dean himself. So uh, it took me about two weeks or three weeks going back and forth and, you know, demanding that he, you know, gives me a, uh, an opportunity to, to speak to the dean. He said, well, I am still not sure if there will be, if I will take girls. Well, I said, I already heard that you are going to take a girl who knows German very well because her parents are diplomats. Uh, but I think that my English that I studied since I was four is not uh, worse than her German. Well, he listened to me, listened and said, you know what, if I decide to take girls, I will take you. So we were accepted, both my, this girl and, and I. Talk about the culture of Russia at that time and after you went to university. In Russia, of course, it was, uh, Ru Ru Russia was a, a nation of readers, and, uh, but not, not, not all the population read as much as, of course, uh, so-called intelligentsia. Yes. <laughs> and, uh, of course, we have uh, a rich culture and rich writers and, and poets and uh, uh, scientists and everything. But uh, also, what was very interesting uh, in, uh, in the Soviet time, uh, books were the most precious thing that people could, could acquire. Because there were no clothes, uh, uh, you know, nice clothes. There were no nice shoes. There was uh, not enough food. That was, but books, you could, you could, you could buy books. And also the culture of uh, not only reading, but translations. The culture of translations was excellent. 
because a lot of poets, especially poets and uh, writers, some of the writers, but especially poets who couldn't publish their own poems, they became translators and they translated poetry from other languages. Why, why couldn't the poets publish their own? <laughs> they couldn't publish their poems because they didn't write about the success of the Soviet life. What was that? Uh, you know, we never talked about it in, in the university uh, because, uh, well, we, we had this political sciences like... Uh, uh, the history of CPSU, Communist Party. Uh, we had uh, so-called scientific communism, which is an absolutely, you know, crazy uh, discipline that just, uh, we, we read uh, the articles written by Karl Marx, by Engels, by Lenin. We had to almost to, um, to learn them by heart. It, it was just such a waste of time. Yes, and you you were required to do that. Yes, yeah, it, would, it would be impossible if we refused. It was obligatory. Yes, it was obligatory. Uh, and, and did uh, most of the people who were your age and and having to read this and having to, um, we read and laughed. You read and laughed. Mm-hmm. We read and laughed, but not publicly. I mean, no, it, of course not. Yes, <laughs> at home, outside, you know, yeah. <laughs> ridicule these these things. Uh, you know, uh, there were lots of jokes made about it. Mm, and uh, was there? Let me just yeah, it's a little okay, bit. It's okay. so 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 there was a kind of parallelism that was going on. The sort of formalized structure of what you had to study, and then the reality check of what it really was, and most of you, it sounds like, did not buy into it. Talk about the how that was, that, that parallelism. Well, you know, it was pretty difficult because, uh, but we, uh, like, learned it since, since we were children. Mm-hmm. Because once I remember that when I was a schoolgirl and we were studying uh, history, uh, and uh, our teacher of history was telling us about execution of the Tsarist family. Yes. And I asked the question. I said that I don't understand why it was necessary to kill the kids. You said and, that? Yes. I said that in the class. So I was taken to the director. Now, wait a minute. How, how old were you at this point? I was 12. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was taken to the director. Because the teacher looked at me and said, how can you say this? This is impossible. Uh, we didn't, uh, the, the Soviet government didn't want the restoration of, uh, of the Tsar, uh, of the monarchy. And they said, but why do you need to kill? Why couldn't you just expel him or whatever? Especially if he uh, refused to be the monarch himself. Yes. And why to, to, to kill kids? I said, it's, uh, it's inhuman. So, uh, our di- and the director was a very wise guy. And uh, he sent this teacher away, and he said, Marina, I respect your father very much, I respect your family. Uh, just try not, 
if you you can talk about these things at home. Mm-hmm. Director of school. Did you is that when you first began to know that there was going to be this sort of I yeah, call it, was, it parallelism. It was it was the the first lesson. It was the first lesson. Obvious lesson because of course at home we talked and uh, my father was never member of the communist party. Uh, when he was offered to to uh, become a member of the Communist Party, he was already 60 years old. And uh, he, he wasn't a tall guy. He was, and he said, I haven't grown up enough. I haven't grown up. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> so that was your first, what, what, what do you think the second story was, the second lesson. The film came out which was called The Ambassador of the Soviet Union. And this film was about Alexandra Kollontai, who was the first woman ambassador. And she was ambassador in Sweden. And she remained there uh, during the whole war, Second World War. And this was the first movie uh, so it was 71. Yeah, it was 71. It was the first movie that showed Stalin because during, since I think 58 till, uh, till 71, none of the films ever showed Stalin. There were no actors playing Stalin because Stalin was out. He could be mentioned, but no picture. That's interesting. And uh, this was the first movie in 71 that showed Stalin. And the reaction of my boyfriend, he started clapping. I looked at him. Then when we came out of, and, and, and he looked at me and said, why are you not clapping? Were, were most people clapping? A few. Mm-hmm. A few. Not, not many. A few. And he asked me, why are you not clapping? I said, I don't see it. I don't feel like doing it. And when we came out, he was absolutely hysterical. He said, well, started yelling at me. And I said, I don't understand what is going on with you. He said, he was a great man. He was blah, blah. I said, what? I said he was a killer. He killed millions of his own people. What are you talking about? There was nothing. And then a few days later, he came to me, uh, to my apartment, and he started to talk some, you know. So I just took him, turned him, you know, around, pushed him out of the apartment, and closed the door. Do you think that that limitation of not of living a double life do you think it fosters creativity because it's a kind of a form of um of expression and that you don't have in a public sense no it's it's difficult um, uh, psychologically because you have you you don't have time uh, to uh, relax you have to be when you are in public you constantly have to be alert, constantly. That is 
tough. Yeah. And talk about that just a little bit. What was the toughest part about it? It's like living a double life. Mm-hmm. It's like having two personalities. Yes. It's like having two personalities. Because you have to play a role of a, of a person who accepts, who is happy about everything that's going on. If you want to, you know, to keep your job, if you want to uh, have a certain, you know, circle of friends, and you don't talk about these things, and you have it, a, a, a normal personality when you are at home, when you are with your very close people, and, uh, and when you are with, with your creativity. Yes. But because when, when you write, you cannot, you cannot control it. No. Those people who control it, from my point of view, they are not real writers or poets. Because they have an agenda. Yes. And it, it's not genuine and it's not organic. Mm-hmm. It's not organic. So if it is organic, then when you write it, Oh my God, what did I write? Into the table, into the, into the drawer. So did you have a lot of things in a drawer, in a table? <sighs> Not very much. Not very much. Because I will tell you that this psychological pressure, it affected my mind as well. Fast forward to 1998. You'd been working in Moscow The business closed, and you decided to do some traveling, which included a visit to a friend who lived in the United States. I was invited to a small party with a friend of mine. Well, she was invited, and they told, bring Marina with you. So we went. We went, and there I met my husband. But the most funny thing is that uh, the party was set for him to meet another lady. Oh, oh really? Yes. But you didn't know that. I didn't know that. <laughs> I didn't know that because the host uh, the, and the hostess, they had a friend who was uh, either a widow or she was single, I don't know. And uh, my husband was single. He was a bachelor. So they decided to, you know, it was said for se- them to meet. For okay. them to meet. They knew it. Nobody else did. But wait a minute. You were at the same party? Yes. But you were just... I was just the... a guest. Mm-hmm. I was just a guest. And there he, were, there he... were There were 10 guests and two hosts. So Lenny knew that he was supposed to meet a woman. And she knew that she was supposed to meet Lenny. So how when... did you get into the picture here? How I got into the picture? Uh, Lenny thought that it was me. Because he glued to me immediately. Yes. He glued to me immediately. And then when they, uh, in, the, in the end of the party, when he wanted to take me home, they dragged, it, uh, they dragged him into another room and said, and, and said well, wait, you wait a minute, wrong... you, you have to meet this. He said, well, I, I don't want to. I, I already met my, my, my woman, my lady. Oh, my God. And so they, did they let you leave together? No, they didn't. They didn't. They took me home themselves. 
So they were really determined that they you were, were determined. just not the right one. Yeah. Yeah. But he called me next day. Of course he did. And and that was it. We we started dating and uh, I I didn't even actually think about. I thought, well, it's nice to 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 date such a nice man. He he was taking me to diplomatic receptions. He was taking me out. It was it was fun. And then I said, you know what? I actually time is coming. I have to go home. And he said, "Will you marry me?" I said, "What?" <laughs> was so unexpected. Marina, earlier we touched on freedom of speech in the United States and the effects of political correctness. Based on your experience in the Soviet Union, what are your thoughts on this? Sometimes political correctness, from my point of view, it's, it's ridiculous. I wouldn't say it's crazy, but it's ridiculous. And what do you mean by that? Because you cannot uh, change the meaning of the, the word. Uh, you cannot replace the word with another one just because it sounds uh, to somebody uh, it sounds insulting. And from my point of view, this is getting worse because you cannot say this, you cannot say this, you cannot insult this, it can be insulting to, the, to these people, this cannot, can, can be insulting to these people. Well, you know, sometimes it's ridiculous. Sometimes it's ridiculous. Does it feel anything like... Um that kind of double life that you led in terms of things being acceptable and unacceptable to say. Censorship. Censorship, I don't like censorship. You have to have, of course, a certain censorship in, in your mind not to use rude words. Of course, I don't accept that. But that is different. Yes. That is different. Yes. And uh, from my point of view, from my point of view, you cannot, if you come to a different, to live in a different country, which has its own culture, that is actually old culture, and you try to push your own laws on this, uh, on the people who are living in this country. From my point of view, it's unacceptable. If you come to a country which gives you home, which gives you citizenship, which gives you all, you know, ways to live a normal life, don't impose your own mind uh, and, and, and your thinking on this culture. If you want to live according to those laws, pardon me, go back and live according to them. Why do you want this nation to change? I don't accept it. Coming from another country, you're in a position to understand that more than, more than most. Absolutely. If you made up your mind to, to be a part of this country, to be a citizen of this country, accept the laws that are established for this country. 
The, my, the main uh, difference between my life in, in Russia and Soviet Union and then Russia and United States is that in the Soviet Union, I lived a double life. Here I live, I became one, I live a single life because I don't have to think about what to say, where, when, I'm free. I would love to hear from you. Send me an email if you have ideas, thoughts, or feedback. That's hello at themegrobinsonshow.com. Tune in next time for more of the stories that make us who we are. I'm Meg Robinson. Thank you.